Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Boys in the Band podcast, where this week we're joined by Rose Eleanor Dougal, once of the Pipettes and now a solo artist. I'm Richie Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And it was interesting chatting with Rose about the concept behind the Pipettes, the thought they put into the look, the sound, and their place in the Naughties indie scene. Here she is now telling us all about it. Like, kind of, we don't look like pop stars, but we kind of wanted to pretend and, like, create a fantasy that maybe we could be pop stars. Um... And so we had these little dance routines and like little like characters and stuff. And it was kind of nice. It was just to be a bit escapist about the way we're thinking about it instead of it all having to be like really real. I think there's a kind of sometimes that thing about you've got to be real. It just kind of becomes a bit limiting. And we wanted to construct a kind of our own reality. Yeah, they certainly stood out and had some great three minute pop tunes too. Uh, but the Pipettes also had a lot of lineup changes, and in 2008, Rose left to start her own solo project. Three and a half albums later, we caught up with her to chat about that transition, uh, recording the full album, which she's doing right now, and also some crazy days she had at the start of her solo career, writing and performing with Mark Ronson. So kick back and have a listen, and give us a follow on our social media channels, and do leave us a nice review as well. But for now, here's Rose Eleanor Dougal. Enjoy. This week, we're joined by one of the founding members of the Pipettes, who is now hard at work on her fourth solo album. Rose Eleanor Dougal, how's it going? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Yes. Very good. good. Great to have you on. We're all suffering with the heat, aren't we? But uh, it's just nice yeah, to have you. slightly melted, but it's okay. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, yeah, so thanks for joining us, Rose. Um, as Rich says, we know you're busy working in the studio at the moment, so I appreciate taking some time out to reminisce with us about the Pipettes. <laughs> And of course, your own solo work as well. We'll get into that in part two. Um, But to kick things off on the Boys in the Band podcast, we always start with what we call the sound check. Three quick questions just to get us going. And the first one is, whereabouts are you today? I'm in northeast London uh, in my flat. Trying to, yeah, just trying to say, like, unmelted. But yes. Very good. And um, what have you been listening to lately? Who's who's top of your your list? Um, Well, I've actually been... um, a good friend of mine is an artist called Wesley Gonzalez, who just put a record out um, about a month ago. Um, and I actually did a bit of backing vocals for his album. Um, and actually, despite him being my friend, and so I know I'm biased, it is actually really one of my favourite records of the year. I just think it's like perfect, wry, emotional pop music. Um, and um, I just, he's got a really brilliant voice. He just really 
he's just a real like he's just a real entertainer I know that sounds kind of naff but uh, it's just really refreshing when I think there's quite a lot of po-faced kind of slightly like kind of self-indulgent music out there and just really great to hear someone just like laying themselves out there a bit more so he's my top tip cool gonna have a listen he used to be in a band um called let's wrestle um so yeah some of your listeners may know yeah excellent and rose the third question which is a question we've been asking throughout the series on the boys in the band podcast i think it's harder and harder each week um with lockdown on but what was the best gig you've been to in the past year or so do you remember a good standout gig you've been to in recent Uh, memory ish (laughs) (laughs) um well i actually did just do one with wes um as a kind of live stream thing a couple of weeks ago which was really like it was really weird and but just so great to be on a stage again it's been such a long time but um in terms of being bearing witness to one I actually it does feel like a complete I can't even remember I saw um Kate Le Bon play uh with my friend um my friend Ewan plays who I've actually been recording with plays with her um last summer and she's I think so fantastic she's one of my favorites so that was a good one all right, excellent. Yeah, it feels like another lifetime. Yeah, a long time ago now. Um, so let's head back to the beginning of the pet story now, if that's all right, Rose. So mm. first formed back in 2003. Uh, they certainly brought something unique to that sort of noughties indie scene. Um, yeah. So can you, can you tell us about how that sort of 60s-inspired pop vocal girl group all, all came together in the first place? Well, I think, I mean, maybe somewhat ironically, given the name of this podcast, it was um, kind of in direct partly informed by a like, direct kind of uh, reaction to this really, really male-dominated uh, kind of indie sort of guitar scene that I think became, uh, sort of was like all pervasive during that time. And I think we were kind of finding that a little bit tedious, <laughs> to be honest. So there was kind of, I just think we wanted to, we were really inspired by um, like, that whole era of like Shangri-Las, Ronettes, the Brill building, thinking about pop music in kind of slightly more, in a different, in a different way really, like what makes the perfect pop song? Um, how do you condense these ideas into three minutes and kind of trying to avoid those slightly more like rock and roll kind of cliches that I think we've been finding like just it just becomes a bit tired that thing and so and then thinking about bands like Bananarama or like Strawberry Switchblade or that sort of stuff and so we wanted to maybe try and do like almost we contrived this like like we had this concept that we came up with like the concept came first before the songs um and so we had this framework to work within so we wanted to basically do like kind of manufacture our own diy pop band and that was kind of the idea um at the beginning um and you know we wanted to have a really strong aesthetic and have a kind of like almost like a little brand that we developed ourselves and so it's kind of like an inverse version of yeah like a manufactured sort of uh mainstream pop band but we'd controlled everything ourselves and we kind of created this world for ourselves and that was yeah, sort of yeah. the idea. And like, you know, also driven by kind of, there was a kind of feminist undertone to it all. And um, yeah, so that was kind of where it all came from. Interesting, you got that, yeah, as you say, that concept first before the songs, because I, I guess a yeah. lot of bands would end up- It's all about the music man. <laughs> it's all about the music man. It's kind of like, it was a bit like, 
we just kind of wanted to just get away from all of that stuff because um, I think you know obviously like libertines and all that sort of world of stuff was just like the main thrust at the time and I think for us we've just felt a bit alienated by that and we just wanted to kind of like kind of pose something a little bit different yeah you say us a few times there so give us an idea of who else was around yeah, working so with you it's me um monster bobby who kind of it was his and actually one of the original members julia they'd been to goldsmiths together and i think they kind of come up with the initial concept and then um becky um basically it was kind of there's a, like a real scene in brighton at the time um kind of centered around this studio called mockingbird in kent town and like loads of bands like Electric Soft Parade and 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster, British Sea Power, that kind of group. They were all kind of, they would all rehearse there. And so there was a kind of community of people that kind of, kind of floating around that. Um, so um, Joe Van Moyland, who later went on to form Jolene and Jing Dang Jong, he kind of introduced me to all of this, this group of people because I was quite a bit younger than the rest of them. So I used to go down there after school in my school uniform and rehearse and it's like, <laughs> smoking weed. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, <laughs> uh, so I was only about 16, 17. Um, and then um, Johnny Falcone was on bass. And then we had a kind of a bit of a revolving door of various people coming to play keys. And so I think pretty much everyone, like there were about 10 different people that maybe had like played in the band over the years. And then obviously... Julia left and then Gweno Saunders, who now has a very successful career with her own solo stuff uh, under the name Gweno. Uh, she joined about two years into it, I think, when Julia left. So it's quite hard to, yeah, it's quite a cast of characters, I guess. You, you talk there about all the different bands. It, it sounds like there's a, a real vibrant scene around in Brighton at that time. There really was. And I think, I mean, I guess this was sort of the last moment where kind of the music industry was still functioning on its old on its old kind of um, model there was still money fly, quite a lot of money flying around people were getting signed without too much problem you know people were still buying records the kind of the recession hadn't kicked in properly you know it was just a very different landscape and there were loads of vet, like very loads of small venues loads of studios um and it felt like music was really loads of club nights it was and I, I think from what I can tell like that isn't really the case in Brighton anymore um I mean I know a few people that still live there I definitely think that that I mean it's just you know you could actually live there really cheaply and I, that is not the way it is now so I, I think it that was a real kind of heyday for Brighton in general yeah myself and Rich were at um Brighton Uni um oh, in really? mid-noughties time yeah right, so you know, you know as, as gig goers we saw you know some of these great uh, club nights you talked about saw great gigs we you saw... go to the pub pub we might have seen you there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah I'm sure our paths yeah. might have crossed at some point um, <laughs> a great escape festival for instance yeah, you know, these fantastic exactly. things going on I mean that's on, still but... going and I, and I think that mm. is a really a real boon for Brighton but on the other hand it's now become that festival I think has become such a sort of industry led thing that actually it's not really I mean it's a great thing for Brighton but it's not as folk, I feel like bands from outside of Brighton come down to play that festival. And I don't feel like it's fully integrated with what is actually happening in the Brighton music scene itself necessarily. Whereas what you were talking about earlier, it sounds like a lot of the bands at that time were sort of 
helping each other out, obviously sharing studio yeah. spaces together and collaborating yeah. or, you know, sharing yeah. advice even, I guess. I mean, I, I, I might be totally wrong, so I don't want to offend anyone that's still in Brighton doing, like holding the kind of baton of the scene alive. Um, but I, I, there was definitely, from, from what I could, I just don't think that that community exists in the same way, but maybe I'm just getting old and I don't know anything about it anymore. So... <laughs> So let's uh, also just uh, touch again on the that kind of sound and, and the aesthetic, as you mentioned, like the, the look of the band. Were you big fans of the 50s and 60s era? You know, how did the polka dots thing sort of integrate into the band as you became known for? Yeah, I'm, well, I've always loved that music. I mean, you just can't, like they're undeniable, those songs, like the Ronettes or the Supremes, or especially when you get into stuff like the Shangri-Las, which is actually like really quite subversive and dark. Um, it's not all kind of bubblegum pop. It's those sort of other ideas that kind of, like this idea of like the teenager and bit, like the first time like you know, the concept of a teenager kind of was ever really commercialized, I suppose. And so that this that kind of sense of yearning and that everyone can relate to. And I think um, just that incredibly like tight writing that is just nothing superfluous. Everything is there for a reason, like melodically really strong. It's like, you know, you can really become obsessed with it. It's like all I really listened to for like about two years at the beginning of that band. And um, obviously I was really, I was really aware of that, you know, those classic hits, but I think I became kind of delved further and like deeper into it, like Shadow Morton or Joe Meek, all these weird, like it's quite weird music and quite um, pioneering sonically as well um, in terms of production. So there's so much to kind of learn from it that, um, yeah, it was such a kind of rich well of inspiration, I suppose. Um, and, you know, that I guess we wanted to kind of apply some of those, like all the girls would, like in those bands would always have matching outfits. So we felt like we should do that too. And we wanted to have dance routines, even though we were, I mean, we had this like, thing of like wanting to just be like, we were normal girls that like, we weren't like kind of, we don't look like pop stars, but we kind of wanted to pretend and like create a fantasy that maybe we could be pop stars. Um, and so we had these little dance routines and like little like characters and stuff. And it was kind of nice. It was just to be a bit escapist about the way we're thinking about it instead of it all having to be like, really real i think there's a kind of sometimes that thing about you've got to be real it just kind of becomes a bit limiting and we wanted to construct a kind of our own reality yeah and and definitely was embraced i think as well like by the whole indie scene at the time i just remember it kind of was i don't know when i mean you i I didn't feel that at the time actually like i always felt that we were out on a limb i mean we used to come play um the Camden Bar, like when we first started to play out of Brighton, came up to London, like we did, played a lot at the Camden Barfly, which is obviously kind of epicentre for the scene that I think this podcast is kind of about. Um, and I, we, we used to play this night um, set up by Queens of Noise called um, Smash and Grab. And I mean, they were women, so they kind of, I think, were, you know, there weren't a lot of girls around doing anything. So I think we kind of did get supported on that level but in terms of like all the other bands around us I think I always felt like we were just sort of interlopers and no one really knew quite what to make of us we didn't really fit in particularly but 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say you, yeah, no, yeah, I'd say like you stood out, but for the right reason. I, I always felt that people really admired what you what you did, and and certainly inspired. You know, a lot of the girls that were going to indie gigs at the time, you know, suddenly saw this band doing something really different and sort of could see themselves. You know, on that, that was, stage. In that the was really what we. That was a big kind of ambition of us to kind of hopefully, yeah, encourage other girls to do the same thing. Because yeah. um, it is, you know, it is a really male dominated, it still is, even now, yeah. and especially in that guitar world, it can be quite an alienating place to be as a young woman. And, um, and I think, you know, it's quite a long time ago now, and like a lot of the conversations that are ha- happening now about, you know, this sort of third, fourth wave of feminism, like that wasn't really in the like, kind of public sort of discourse, particularly at that time, I don't feel. And um, so, yeah, I, I think it, I guess in retrospect, we probably were a little bit kind of, we were not pioneers, but we were doing something, I feel. Sure. So we've spoken quite a lot about the concept of the, of the group, of the band, so, but let's talk about, about the music um, that made up that We Are The Pipettes debut album. Yeah. So what's the process for writing something like Your Kisses Are Wasted On Me or Paul Shapes? And what are your thoughts now looking back on that album? We kind of, we split all the songwriting seven ways, like with, with our publishing, and that was really important for us that nobody kind of could lay there wasn't like a a lead songwriter it was like we wanted to be really egalitarian with the way we approached everything um but it tended to be that someone would have have a little song they'd bring it to the band and then we'd sort of arrange it in the room together um so uh yeah so that was kind of it and like we me and the girls would come up with vocal parts together and harmonies and the boys would just sort of work out the music and then that it kind of just would slowly form itself that way. And I mean, I've not listened to that record, if I'm honest, for a while. (laughs) But it's, you know, it's, I think it's a really good pop record. I think it's like, we wanted to make something really short and incisive and direct and like no fluff all the songs had to be under three minutes and I think you know we recorded it in two weeks and very quickly in Fortress Studios in Old Street and you know we didn't fuck about basically we just just got it done and I guess we've been playing the songs live for quite a long time before we recorded it so it was I mean really it was quite straightforward I think because we all knew what we were working within so I, I guess it's a bit of, it's a completely different process to like the way I write my own music now, but it was a really great experience to have to learn to apply your, like, I mean, it was, I was the first real songwriting I'd done for, for a band. Um, I've been writing a little bit on my own previously, but um, it was kind of almost like going to like songwriting school or something. <laughs> so yeah. And uh, mentions uh, your kisses are wasted on me, and sort of that did pretty well in in the US as well. And, and heard that you had some yeah. good shows over in South by Southwest. So how did the band go down outside of the UK? What are your memories of touring around around the globe at that time? Well, I mean, I think looking back, like I I think we didn't really realise how lucky we were. I mean, we toured America three times in uh, in a sleeper bus, which is just sort of unheard of these days, unless you've got massive massive budgets. Um, we had I mean, we kind of always hoped that the band would go down well in Japan, and it did. We were like number two in the charts, like the week our album came out, which was amazing. We got to go there like three times and had lots of kind of lost in translation moments where like we, one of our songs got used for some dodgy sitcom, 
and as the theme tune and we had to do a kind of um, cameo on on set and none of us knew what the hell was going on. It's like, it was, you know, and we got to go to Australia a couple of times and toured you, you know, we really, I really, I think we, that kind of touring globally now for a band is so difficult. Um, and I, I guess kind of didn't really know how lucky we were in a way to have these audiences that were sort of receptive to to us um, to make that possible. So yeah, I mean, it was a, about three or four years of quite like full on, it was full on, yeah, proper. And as you said, you know, you're sort of late teens, early 20s there. Yeah. This all happened fairly young for you. It must have been yeah. quite a bit of a whirlwind, really. It was a bit. It was, yeah. uh, um, you know, it was, I, I, I got the bug. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I was, I'm doomed. <laughs> bit early. Um, but then you and Becky left the band in 2008. Um, yes. You mentioned earlier about Julia being replaced by Gwyno uh, in yeah. 2005. So no original members left at that point. So, yeah. you know, we talked about the excitement, the whirlwind, the things you learned as a songwriter, the enjoyment of that concept that you managed to deliver so successfully. So why do you yeah. decide to step away? Well, I think, you know, we come to the end of that touring cycle and it was time to start thinking about like, album number two. And I was, I guess, uh, 21 by this point. And I think, you know, working on the end, like there were so many great things that working within that, those kind of uh, confinements but I, that became a little bit constricting for me personally but sort of thinking about having to do another write another record in that way I just I'd sort of lost I didn't really know like when I was writing those my the songs that made the album like I was at school I, those things were relevant to me and I guess I couldn't quite make see how they would sort of become where they uh, yeah it just didn't fit with where I was at that point in my life and I guess you know I have a kind of different I've grown up I grew up listening to a slightly different kind of world of music that actually informed the music that I would like to make personally and it just felt like the right time to maybe just make a leap and see what happened out on my own it was a hard thing to decide but I just felt like it had run it it just had run its course for me personally but I mean, I'm so proud of what we managed to do. But it kind of almost felt like it was only ever meant to exist for one record in, in my head. Yeah, bold step uh, to walk away. But the, and the band went on to release a, a second album, Earth versus the Pipettes, in 2010. But then they finished up and disbanded the following year. Uh, yeah. But Rose, Rose, you continue making making your own music, and uh, we'll pause here, and then in part two, we'll talk about uh, your solo work and how you've uh, got on with your, your first three albums, and also collaborating and performing with Mark Ronson. Oh. Hi, I'm Rose Eleanor Dougal and you're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys in the Band podcast where we're joined by Rose Eleanor Dougal. Now, once of the pipettes and now a solo artist. Now, around 2007, Rose, I remember seeing Mark Ronson on a night out in London. And uh, I can remember pestering him rather drunkenly um, about various bands and telling him actually about the pipettes. Um, 
I think if we look at the chronological, oh, that's a big word, chronological order um, yeah. of that, um, I think you started to work with band a year or so later, um, perhaps after you'd left at that time. Um, yes. But you've ended up working, Mark, in the end anyway as a solo artist. Mm. So tell us about how that all came together. Well, I think he was quite a big fan of the band, like, um, well, so still in it. Um, and actually, I think he said that that kind of frame of reference was one of the things that kind of inspired the sound of like the Amy Winehouse record. I mean, obviously that is a kind of stone, stone cold classic and on a kind of, I think on another level musically to what we were doing, but um, I, I, that I, so yeah, he's definitely been aware of me previously. And I, I think I met him on a drunken night in 2007 <laughs> uh, and uh, I think I might have told him to fuck off because he was nicking all my cigarettes but uh, that <laughs> apparently didn't put him off me um, and I think so I guess this is in 2009 um, he just got in touch with me completely out of the blue on MySpace which even then was starting to feel like a bit of an archaic <laughs> form of communication just saying hey are you around I want to talk to you about something and I was like oh my god what is this and then I ended up going for a like 20 minute meeting with him in a studio in Shoreditch. He's like, I'm writing a new record. Do you want to come to Brooklyn for a while and help write this new album? And I was like, what? I, okay, I guess I hadn't had any music. And he sort of described it to me as being like, well, this kind of synth-led sort of gorillas-y thing. And I was like, right, sounds kind of interesting, but sure. I don't, um, and suddenly I was there um, and working in the Duck King studio in Brooklyn which was just, a, yeah, something I hadn't sought out at all. It was completely um, unplanned, but that was a really, really um, amazing experience. I got to work with some of the best musicians I've ever encountered and, all, you know, rappers and all sorts of stuff that like, I just would never have be, like, got the opportunity to be involved with on my own. Um, so then uh, I... Yeah, one of the songs I wrote made the record and I sang on a few others and then we ended up touring it up until almost 2012, uh, which was, again, just another total whirlwind um, and a really different thing to be put on those, you know, those much bigger stages than I'd ever really, like, I mean, really been on uh, to sort of thousands of people every night and having to be on the stage on my own for the first time was actually, I mean, I've been playing shows with my solo stuff, but that was a bit more of a kind of bandy indie affair, but then suddenly sort of thrust in this like big pop stage, like with no, I didn't have like the girls flanking me to kind of help me feel safe. So I guess I had to sort of learn very quickly, like how to perform in that way, which, um, yeah, I, I guess after leaving the band, the pipettes, I kind of shunned this like pop thing a bit. And so I'm going to go be, make some like serious music now and then suddenly I was like found myself back in sort of that's a similar kind of world but um I've always I just for me making music is about experiences and I've always wanted to learn and throw myself into situations that I don't expect to be in and so um yeah like me and Mark are still really great friends and um we've done some stuff since then together and yeah he's just always been really supportive of me and I guess I've always been kind of surprised because I'm not like necessarily the obvious choice and I don't have like an obvious pop voice, but um, for some reason he's always, yeah, been on my team, which is, I'm very lucky. Yeah, it must have been a really exciting time to sort of be 
in the studio in Brooklyn touring touring around, you know, featuring in one of his music videos and you know, yeah, all, yeah, all I mean, there were no things. like smelly mini buses anywhere, so it's like <laughs> a different, it was a very different deal. Um, it kind of spoiled me for touring after, like, like where's my private jet? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, you, t- you touched on your your solo record there a little bit and, and uh, that sort of slightly different approach. So you talk about that sort of transition from, you know, being in a group with a dedicated backing band to life as a solo artist and that sort of step away from that sort of really poppy sound into into what you were doing on, on your debut album, Without Why. Yeah, um, well, I guess, yeah, it was just a very, I mean, I did sort of feel like I, ha- I kind of just t- took me a while to kind of recalibrate after I left the band and sort of just just like actually what the hell was what the hell just what happened uh and so I'd spent a few months feeling a bit kind of at sea and just started writing very simply on my own in my bedroom on the Casio tone keyboard um and sort of slowly just developed I kind of just wanted to break out of having to think about writing for anyone else and just try and maybe employ some of them you know, I grew up listening to a lot of folk music and a lot of like singer songwritery stuff and and sort of film scores and so I think I just wanted to try and draw like just start to work out how I existed more naturally as a musician as an individual, um, which is quite a frightening thing to sort of embark upon. But um, I didn't really have, I mean, like bands like the Cocteau Twins or the Sundays or you know, that kind of, or Susie Sue, or, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, and so I just sort of had found myself with a body of work and ended up kind of making contact with a producer based in Brighton called Lee Baker. So me and him just worked very closely together, just kind of building up these arrangements around these like very, very uh, primal little demos that I had. Um, so that took about six months actually all together just kind of very gradually slowly find this kind of soundscape for like sonic palette for what I was trying to achieve um so yeah that came out in 2010 um actually whilst I was still on tour with Mark so we ended up my bands ended up supporting him and then I'd go and do the Mark show afterwards which was quite hard work actually um uh yeah so then so that was that uh what now? <laughs> then I made another one. <laughs> then you made another one. Obviously, that's such a busy time, it sounds like, there with the, those two aspects going on. But it was a seven-year mm. break before Stellula came out, her yeah. second album. So yeah, what, what mean, was going was, on there? Well, I was sort of touring with Mark for a couple of years, mm. which, so I, it felt, I mean, I ostensibly looks like I wasn't doing anything, but I, I knew <laughs> But um, there was, like, a period after the Mark tour that, I guess, there was, it was a bit, I was just kind of a little bit unsure as to where to go from there, just because I suppose some people around me sort like, well, you should be a pop star if you've been doing this pop stuff. And I guess I kind of maybe lost sight of where I was actually, I don't know, lost my grounding a bit, if I'm honest, I think. Um, and also during that time, the landscape of the rec- music industry changed sort of completely. And um you know finding a way to make records like to get a deal to all this stuff just became so much harder and so I guess I had to kind of fall back on my own resources in the end and 
finally I've been working trying out stuff with various different writers and producers and I finally ended up meeting Ollie Baston who who is a brilliant producer also has his own uh, solo project called Boxed In and then suddenly it just very very quickly every, it all just kind of came together and we just had this really brilliant um, kind of musical relationship just developed very very organically and so that was kind of just me and him in the studio just writing and recording um, over the course of about two or three months and then suddenly I had an album and actually I did finish it in 2000 like the end of 2015 um, but it just for some reason or other is not very interesting it just took a while <laughs> to find the right way to get it out so that was where that kind of gap came from but yeah yeah a pretty big break between those first two albums but your third album a new illusion quickly followed just last yeah. year and and you're back in the studio already so yeah can you can you tell us about what you're working on now well um i think i'd sort of like after cellular was released and it kind of i think i sort of lost a bit of heart and actually it did a bit better than i thought it was going to and it was like rough trade album of the month and just it so i suddenly felt like a bit energized about the whole thing again which meant Kind of work like I don't know a second a third record sort of came quite quickly after that and um it's I guess this whole thing is like you have to learn how to trust your own instincts and I I've been doing it quite a while now and I just kind of feel <laughs> like I actually know what I I know what I'm doing a little bit more I mean kind of within reason but um <laughs> so yeah this next well I don't really know what to say about this next record because it's really in early stages and. Um, I mean, I've been writing a bit during lockdown, but actually I didn't find it as creatively kind of rewarding a time as maybe some, you know, there's all this stuff like you meant to have written a novel or like three records or whatever. But actually it's like, you know, it's been, it's hard to feel in sort of uh, energized when the world feels like it's just falling apart around you. Um, I sort of seem to, I think I've broken through that now. Um, so I'm, I think my plan is just to continue writing and recording for the rest of the year and just we'll see what comes out. And I'm, I'm really open to, I mean, I think every record I've made has been some kind of step forward into, some, into new territory. And I think that's important for me to keep uh, that motion. Um, I've become really, really interested in arranging for strings. It's something I've never really done before. So there's quite a lot of that going on at the moment. But beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who's going to produce it. I don't know what's going to happen. But we'll, yeah, it's, it's happening in some way. It'll all come together in the end. So, <laughs> in terms of the sound, though, I mean, you know, we spoke earlier and about the pipettes and having this concept and this idea of what you wanted it to sound like. Have you got a vision for this, for this next album? Um, well, I, I guess the last record, um, A New Illusion, was... A kind of trying to just get back to like I my main instrument is piano and I, I I avoided playing piano for most of most of like I don't know for some reason I just felt kind of weird about it and would tend to move towards synths more or um, other sounds but I I think I've just sort of really started to enjoy writing and playing piano and singing and I want that to maybe be a bit more of a foundation just something that's a little bit more natural and a little bit less contorted. And I'm also, I've got some really fantastic musicians around me who are very generous with their time and energy. And I just, I'm kind of just interested in sort of the opposite of all the stuff I was talking about with the pets. It's just letting things breathe a bit more and not being quite so kind of heavy handed about 
verse, chorus, verse. Like, I just, I'm not really going to get on, you know, I'm not going to get on the Radio 1. So I kind of, like, can let go of all that stuff and just maybe be a little bit more kind of relaxed about how I approach, like, song structure and doesn't all need to be, like, the big chorus and just creating a bit more sort of scenic soundscapes. It sounds really pretentious, but just... There's actually just really nice to listen to as opposed to it all just be about like me singing my fucking nonsense at people the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds really interesting, Rose. Yeah, no, we look, we'll definitely look forward to uh, to when that materialises, hopefully yeah, not too far down the line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So um, we're going to wrap things up now with, uh, with the encore, Rose. So first question in our encore, it's just, it might be a difficult choice for you or maybe not, but if you could choose, would you prefer to be uh, on stage solo or in a group? Well, I always do it. I, I mean, I always play with a band, so I need I need to be with other people. So I think in a group, but yeah. playing my own songs. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, next question in the encore, Rose. What's the favourite gig you've done, whether that was Pipette's time, whether that was with Mark Ronson, whether that was doing your own stuff? What's your, your favourite gig you've done? Favourite gig? Oh, that's a really difficult question. Um, had a really great gig in Brooklyn with Mark. That was actually one of my favourite gigs. I know that we, like, when I was with Mark, we played at the Roundhouse uh, in Camden, and it was almost like a Hollywood review of like all these different artists, like Boy George, like um, Holly Johnson, and um, Kathy Dennis, and then Ghostface Killer was like came on and about an hour before the gig like Mark was like oh well, it would be really cool if you could sing like the vocal on Sher Shayla Ghost with Ghostface he's like really up for it I was like oh. I, had, I actually cried in the toilet because I was like I can't believe this is happening um, but it did happen and that was a pretty massive thing to do but yeah there's no video footage of it so no one believes me but it did happen <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was good <laughs> I'm sure it was. We, we believe you. And uh, that sounds good. Um, <clears throat> probably an equally tricky one, but we also generally finish off our podcast it's asking our artists if they can pick out the song that you're proudest of, that you've written. I'm really proud of a song I sang on um, Baxter Jury's last album called Porcelain, um, which I really love that album and I really love working with Baxter. So in terms of collaboration, I think that might be my favourite thing. Um, and in terms of my own work, uh, there's a song called Something Real on my last record, which I just feel, yeah, I just got it. I just, it, I set out to do something and I feel like, because you never really quite achieve what you think you're going, like you have all these big ideas and it never quite comes off. But I think that one is the closest to me feeling like I really achieved what I set out to do. Excellent. Rose, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. As I say, reminiscing about the pipettes. We both love that band back in the day and then okay. your solo stuff as well. And all the Thank you so much. new adventures you're on with uh, this music <laughs> <Yeah>. as well. <laughs> Lovely. Nice all one, right, Rose. Thanks, Thank guys. Cheers. Cheers, Rose. Cheers. Save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot. You'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. 